Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. I'm Kurt Heelan, managing editor at Pro Basketball Talk with you as always. And today we're going to start taking a look ahead to the NBA draft because, look, a lot of us get a time to watch these guys during the conference tournaments that are coming up this weekend and then the NCAA tournament that follows it. We're bringing in Rob Doster from College Basketball Talk at NBC Sports, just one of the best guests we have on to break it all down, talk about guys we should be looking at, you know, beyond that Zion guy who I guess is pretty good. We're going to get to all that in just a second. But first, wanted you to know today we are brought to you by OnDeck.com. Look, if you're a small business owner, it's a lot of work. Managing cash flow, hiring employees, all this takes access to capital. That's hard to get from traditional banks. That's where OnDeck.com comes in. They're aimed for small businesses. You can get funding in 24 hours, loans up to $500,000, lines of credit up to $100,000. It's fast. It's secure. It's aimed for people like yourself. Just go to ondeck.com slash PBT right now. And as a listener, you get an exclusive deal, a free consultation with one of their U.S.-based loan specialists. Again, that's ondeck.com slash PBT. And now, well, let's just get into this and bring in a guy who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but earned his way into his college. Rob Doster, how you doing, man? I am doing great. I'm just a little offended that I'm only one of your best guests. If I'm not the best guest, I don't know if I'm allowed <laughs> to be on this podcast anymore. Uh I, I will go back in and edit that for you. You are <laughs> you are clearing away the these best guests we have on this. And I, thanks for coming in and talking about this. I, I feel like there's an obligation almost to start with Zion a little bit. He will be back for the ACC tournament um, and and obviously the NCAA's. Yes, that is the expectation. Um, I don't have any inside info on this, but my gut kind of tells me that this was the the kind of thing where they were just like look we're gonna we're gonna hold you out until you get 100 healthy and we are going to bring you back for the games that actually matter and and once it became clear that um winning the a the aac or the acc regular season title wasn't going to be something that happened with him uh, i i was not surprised to see him uh sit out until the postseason started now we don't have any official confirmation uh, but the last time that that uh, Coach K spoke to the media, he made it seem like this is what uh, it was going to be. Um, what do I don't do? We really learn anything? I mean, other than that, he really wants to compete and get out there. I don't know that we learn anything new about him um, as fans. It's just it's fun to watch him, and it makes it makes that tournament a lot more fun. Makes the NCAA tournament a lot more interesting. I mean, I think just the fact that he's willing to get back out there tells you all you need to know about just the kind of makeup he has, right? Like part of 
part of the concern and part of the risk of drafting 18 and 19 year old kids that have all this potential is, is trying to figure out whether or not they are actually going to live up to that potential. And part of living up to that potential is, do they care? Are they going to put in the work? Are they going to try hard? Are they going to put in the effort to, to help you in basketball games? Or are they just kind of going to the league to go through the motions and get that big old contract and make that shoe company money? Um, and I think the fact that, you know, despite the fact that that, that Zion is already kind of like guaranteed whatever he wants, whenever he decides to go to the NBA, uh, he's still willing to come back and play with his team and play with his friends and uh, try to compete for a championship. So I think it tells you a little bit about what the, the, the way that his his mind works and the way that he's kind of made up and the way that he wants to compete. And that matters. I think that that's the kind of thing that you can look at and say, okay, maybe he is – it makes you a little bit more, more comfortable thinking he's going to be able to reach his ceiling. Just to diverge a little bit off of that though, I, I, I the other thing I like about him going to college and then doing this was – you know, Mark Cuban came out the other day and said that elite players would be, you know, uh, crazy, I believe was his term, to pass up the 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 deal the league is putting together for, you know, you can go to the G League for a year, earn $125,000 and, you know, play in a G League for a year and then go pro. And you'd be silly not to do that because you'd be making money. And his big push was you could sign marketing deals. You could sign a shoe deal because you're not, you know, tied to the NCAA rules. And my first thought, you know, I, I it seemed to be aimed at the Zion Williamsons of the world. And my first thought was, look, yes, when he played in in AAU circuits and what and what have you, he'd throw down a big dunk and it would be all over YouTube and it was all over the basketball channels and it would get, you know, hundreds of thousands of likes and what have you on Instagram. But that was still a bit of a niche market. Like he is what's really fascinating about him now is how marketable he is. He's going to come into the league and sign, if not the biggest rookie shoe deal ever, right up there at the top with the top guys. And his year at Duke had a lot to do with that. I mean, we knew he could be good going into the last year of, of you know, or this this coming this past season. But we if he had played in, I don't know, Austin or Long Island or wherever in the G League, which, you know, you can only watch on Facebook Live, he'd still have a niche following. Duke changes his marketing complexion. And I think a lot of players see that. And that's why the league is going to struggle to get some of these guys to 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 follow their path. Yeah. And I think that the point that needs to be made here is Duke certainly helped Zion Williamson build his brand. It, it yes. allowed him to connect to an audience and to connect to a certain demographic of people that maybe does not know um, what like an Instagram superstar is or what like a YouTube mixtape legend is, right? Like there's there there are millions and millions of people out there that knew who Zion Williamson was starting when he was like a sophomore just because of what he was able to do and the clips that went viral and the fact that Drake wore his jersey and all that kind of stuff. But going to Duke and doing what he's done on that kind of a stage has made it made it made it to the point where when he got hurt, like my mom was asking me about Zion Williamson. My mother-in-law was asking me about Zion Williamson and, you know, they aren't the biggest sports fans in the world. So I think that just kind of shows you the reach that he was able to get playing for Duke and being a star for Duke. And I also think it's important to note that he was not the clear cut number one pick when he was coming out of high school. He was a guy that people were talking about as like probably top five, maybe top eight if he, you know, if the the athleticism doesn't translate like we thought and the shooting isn't there and blah, 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 whatever. And he's like 
played his way into being, in my mind, the best prospect that we've seen since Anthony Davis, maybe a better prospect than Anthony Davis. I, I, I very much think that he is a guy that's going to be um, a superstar at the next level. So um, while I do think that he would have been just fine and made like generational wealth and, and, and had more money than he could spend in five lifetimes, even if he didn't go to college, I certainly think that going to Duke has helped him um, become a bigger brand and, and kind of be more uh, more well-known. So um, he helped Duke, Duke help him, helped him, but I don't think that it's the kind of thing where like if he doesn't go to Duke, he is not where he is and he's not going to end up being the player that he was. It's, I think the comparison to make is like Trey Young. Trey Young played his way into being a top, what's he, number three pick or something like number uh, five, five pick. Five, yeah. He was, so he played his way into being a top five pick when he wasn't going to uh, – no one thought he was a one and done. Everyone thought Zion Williamson was a one and done, and he's proved himself to be more than that. So um, he's definitely helped himself, but it's not like he was a nobody before he got to college. Rob, I want to just take a quick break to talk to the small business owners out there directly because – Look, you you probably need help managing your cash flow and hiring employees and purchasing inventory. and Maybe you need to upgrade your office space because things are going really well. The challenge with all that, obviously, is just getting access to capital. It takes money. And you go to those traditional banks, those big banks that are big businesses, and they don't really get you. You need somebody who gets small business. That's where OnDeck.com comes in. Look, they're 100% committed to small business owners. Fast, easy, tailored financing. You can do it online. You can get funding in 24 hours. Loan terms up to half a million. Lines of credit up to 100000 None of it requires your business as collateral. The application process is simple. They've already lent over $10 million to 80,000 small businesses. They've got a great rating with the Better Business Bureau and Trustpilot. Look, this is a great thing for you. If you're a small business owner, you need access to capital. Go to ondeck.com slash PBT. If you go from slash PBT, they know you came from us and you get an exclusive free consultation with one of their U.S.-based loan specialists. You can apply online or over the phone. It gets decided in minutes. Again, go to ondeck.com slash PBT. That's O-N-D-E-C-K dot com slash PBT and get your free consultation now. You'll be glad you did. Does Duke have enough shooting to win this thing? <laughs> That's the million dollar question, right? Um, I do think that they have enough shooting uh, because um, I don't think that they really have to shoot all that well to win a national <laughs> title. That. You know, like like and and here's the thing, you know. When they played at Virginia, they shot 13 for 21 from three. And that's not going to happen every single night. But R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish and, and, you know, when those guys get going, they can make five, six, seven threes in a night. Alex O'Connell is a guy that can come in and make three or four for you if you need it. Jack White um, went through like an awful, awful, awful cold stretch, but he's still a guy that should be able to come in and stretch the floor a little bit and, and play that uh, that kind of like switching um, combo forward role. So I do think that they have enough shooting. And I say that because I don't really think they need all that much shooting to be able to get it done. Now, if you're going to tell me how do they end up losing in the NCAA tournament, I'm going to say it's because they have a night where they go two for 18. Like, the point is not that they they are incapable of losing because of how well they can shoot. The point is that they don't have to shoot all that great to be able to win a national title. And I think they're going to be good enough, especially like if Zion comes back and their defense gets back to what it's going. Because you know what he does and, and what I don't think people quite appreciate is – like what his presence on the floor brings for Duke defensively and what it does for them on the offensive end of the floor. And what I, what I mean by that is um, he has 
when when teams drive in the lane, they know where Zion Williamson is. He is one of those guys where uh, you are always checking over your shoulder, and you're always conscious of the fact that there is a six foot seven, two hundred eighty five pound behemoth that wants to put the ball through the backboard at the rim, waiting for you. And if you're a guard driving, like you have to be conscious of that and you have to be alert of that and you have to know in the back of your mind, Zion Williamson is coming from somewhere. So he changes the way that play, that teams play offensively just by being on the floor. And that's to say nothing of, you know, what it does for their ability to get out and, and, and kind of overplay on the perimeter. So you're going to see more steals from guys like Cam Reddish and RJ Barrett and Trey Jones who know that they can gamble because if the team does drive, then, well, you know what? Zion Williamson is right there. He's their best defensive rebounder. He is a guy that is a grab and go for. And all of this stuff, all of these stops, all of these live ball turnovers, all of these these misses that they force, that turns into Duke's transition game. And Duke is absolutely lethal in transition. They are unstoppable when they get going like that. So that's where you get all those points from. That's where you get all those highlights from. That's where you get all those fast break dunks from. Then throw in what he can do on the offensive glass. And and we're talking about like probably 15 to 18 points per game, maybe more that come without having to go up against a set defense. And where the shooting will come into play is when they have to go up against a set defense. And that's why you're seeing them struggle more against the likes of like Wake Forest and getting blown out by North Carolina and all that. And that's why the shooting comes into play when he's not there. When Zion's there, then all of a sudden, all those missed threes that they're getting are going to be run out layups and and points in transition. And that's what makes them dangerous. When they can play without having to go up against the set defense, when they can play without having to worry about the shooting that will space the floor, that's where he makes the difference. When he went down, I think there was a thought among myself, I think, and some other people that, that Cam Reddish would be the guy who kind of would step up and, and have a a chance to fill a larger role. And uh, he was 15 of, of 50 from three while he was out, uh, two to one turnovers to assists. I, did he hurt his stock or, or or was what was with his struggles? I don't know, man. Uh, Cam Reddish, I think, is the one – it's like the one weakness that I have here because all I do when I watch him play is I just see what his potential is. And I, I know how good he can be in isolation. And I know what he can be when um, he has a chance to kind of have like the offense built around him a little bit. You know, he, he's had some of his best games that he's had have been when uh, Zion Williamson has not been on the floor. Like um, the, the game at Florida State comes to mind when he hit the game winner. He had I wanted, he had a really big game when they played at North Carolina the other night. So um He's had moments where he's been really, really good without Zion there. I just think that he's kind of in a situation where he's never going to be a ball dominant guy in that offense, you know. And, and Zion Williamson, when he has, he's on the floor, he really isn't either. Like everything kind of runs through RJ Barrett with that team. And I think that Cam is not necessarily in the best position to be just kind of like an off the ball guy playing with someone that is as ball dominant as RJ Barrett is. So I think that he fits a little bit better in the NBA than he does on this Duke team. And it's also the kind of situation where like if he had gone to, I don't know, like if he had ended up at Kansas, for example, right on a team where they are just starving for uh, perimeter scoring and, and looking for somebody that they can run offense through um, on the perimeter that can make shots and can create on their own, where he's going to get 17, 18, 19 shots a night where he's going to have the ball in his hands, where he could play a little bit more as kind of the initiator and, and the creator, then I think that we're having a very different conversation about what he is. I just don't think that 
as good as he is, I don't think that his skill set necessarily perfectly fits with the role that he's being asked to play at Duke. And I also think that it's promising. You know, we haven't we haven't had any reports like Cam Reddish is upset. Like sources say Cam Reddish, sources close to Cam Reddish are not, are not happy with the minutes he's getting or the role that he's played. At that. I think that, you know, he hasn't been he hasn't been great and he hasn't been super consistent, but he's gone out and he's done his job. And I think that that is something that that you can look for moving forward, because I don't necessarily think he's going to be a superstar in the NBA. He's going to have to be a guy that goes out there and does his job. And, and look, he's going to have to get better. And I think there is a ceiling there. Um and but but I'm just I'm a little bit more apprehensive. You know, I, the last time I did a mock draft, I had a number two above John Morant and RJ Barrett, and I'm a little bit apprehensive of that ranking. I just I think that his skill set fits in the NBA and what what we see in terms of the modern NBA. You know, he's six eight. He's athletic. He's a really good defender. He's a playmaker on that end of the floor. He can make shots. You know, there's there's he has like five or six highlights this season where he makes a play off the dribble and you're just like, wow, that is a move that would get a bucket in the NBA right now at this very moment. Um, But the problem is he just hasn't done it consistently enough. Uh, Most teams that I've heard from still seem to have RJ as, as kind of second on the, on the, on the list. Does that make sense to you? Just as, I mean, he was the the consensus number one, I guess, but you know, last summer, Um, he certainly brings a skill set that, that fits. Um, And like you said, Duke's, Duke's running it through him. Yeah, I mean, the production is just at such an insane level. Uh, I went back and I checked. He's averaging, I want to say it's 23-7-4. And the only guy at the high major level that has put up production close to that in the last 28 years, since 1992, that's as far as the basketball reference database goes, was Anthony Hardaway. Yeah. And Penny did big. it against, yeah, he did it against Great Mid, I think it was the Great Midwest Conference. He did it against that league. RJ is doing it against, the ACC. So um, the production is unquestionable. My big thing with him is I think he's a little bit too left-hand dominant. I think that he does not have the kind of like elite level explosiveness that you want to see out of somebody that is going to play the role that he wants to play in the NBA. I don't think that he is necessarily a great passer, although I'm coming off of that take a little bit based on what he's done over the course of like the last two weeks. Um, I don't think he is a good enough shooter to be able to do what he's going to need to do in the role that he wants to play at the NBA level. Now, I think he's going to be a good pro. And if I had to guess like what his career trajectory is going to be, I would say that it it would end up being like his ceiling will be like a five-year period from 23 to 28, where every season is uh, about what Shabazz Muhammad was at his best. Like, I think it was, was it 2014 when he averaged like, you know, 13 points and eight boards and, could, um, he could, get, he just, could go get buckets for a while there, yeah. Yeah, like he was a good player, but he wasn't great, and he wasn't someone that you want to build a franchise around, but he was a good piece for like one or two years. And I think that that's kind of what uh, – when R.J. Barrett is at his ceiling, that's what it is going to end up being. I think he's going to have a longer career, and he's going to be a more effective player for uh, for more teams than Shabazz Muhammad was. I just kind of think like that's that's about what the ceiling is with uh, with with R.J. And, you know, when I look at Cam Reddish, I just – I see a guy – if he hits a ceiling, he can kind of be in that Paul George mold. And I see with John Morant how if he hits his ceiling, he can end up being that like dynamic ball dominant point guard. Like I don't want to compare him to Russell Westbrook because Russell Westbrook is in that category of human being that you should never compare a 19-year-old kid to. But I think that he has the physical tools where it's not outlandish to think that there's like a 5% chance 
that Morant could end up doing kind of the same thing at the NBA level that Russell Westbrook is doing. When I talk to teams too, you, you mentioned, you know, that, that uh, Barrett could have a long career. There was a sense that, yeah, this is not a good top heavy draft. I've got questions about everybody after, after Zion, but that once you get into the, the teens and the twenties, there's still some guys who could be really solid rotation players. Like it's, it, it's a deeper draft with, potentially good players than you know and, and guys who can just be part of a team that doesn't have the top heavy stars but there are a lot of guys who you know there's teams that are just kind of high looking at their you know their spots in the teens and 20s and thinking hey we can get a guy who's just you know can come in and play for us in a couple you know maybe in a year might, might take a year or two of development but we can get a rotation guy out of this and they're pretty happy with that yeah, and I don't even think you have to go all the way down to the teens and the 20s. I think that in the back end of the top 10, there is actually going to end up being some pretty good value. Um, if I was a team drafting, if like I had a, a top six or a top seven pick this year, I would probably try, barring like outside of number one. Like if you're drafting like two to seven, I think that that's the kind of pick that I would try to trade um, just because I don't think that you're going to get I've heard that a lot. Value. I've, I've, yeah, I've, like, I've, I've heard that exact thing that, that there's, there's going to – be a lot of teams trying to move. You saw this actually at the NBA trade deadline. Everybody was willing to throw in a pick for the first time in about three years. And it's just because they were willing to move down in this draft. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that's the big thing is from like two to seven, two to eight, you just don't have that same kind of um, game changing talent. Like RJ Barrett in, in like, like last year's draft where the top five all ended up being really, really good yeah. would have been a nice like seventh, eighth, ninth pick. And you probably would have been happy getting a guy that you thought could end up being a 10-year pro with a chance to average like 13 points, 14 points for uh, you know an extended number of seasons. Like that's good when you're getting them as the seventh, eighth, ninth pick. That's not that good when you're getting them as the second pick where you're hoping that the guy that you draft will end up being like a franchise-changing uh, NBA superstar that you could build around for a decade. And I just don't think that anyone in this draft other than Zion is going to end up being that guy. Now, um, like I love DeAndre Hunter. I think that DeAndre Hunter is going to play 12 years in the NBA. I think he is going to be everything we want OG Ananobi to be. I think he might be better than OG Ananobi. Like I've, I've watched games this year where he guarded Kobe White, Cam Johnson, and Luke May in the same game. You know, he can – we talk about, oh, he's switchable. He can guard all these different positions. Well, DeAndre Hunter is guarding future NBA players that are point guards, that are wings, and that are big men all in the same game. And he's doing it right now. Like he is he, – he's – everyone wants to talk about Brandon Clark. And, and, look, I love Brandon Clark and I get it. But for my money, DeAndre Hunter is the best defender in college basketball. And he just so happens to shoot like 48% from three. And he's six foot seven with a seven foot one wingspan. And he can beat you off the dribble. And he has no problem. Like he's played in this Virginia system for two years. He has no problem playing a role. I love everything about him. I think he's going to play in the NBA for a dozen years. And we're going to get to see Virginia for more than one game in the tournament this year? Hopefully. <laughs> that's the. I mean, that's the plan at least. And on a serious note though, like I actually – so I actually think that Virginia is – if Duke doesn't win the national title, I think Virginia is probably the favorite. I think that they're the best team in the country not named Duke. Uh, and if Zion Williamson does not come back at 100%, then I think that, that Virginia is the best team in the country. And it all has to do with what DeAndre Hunter can do. 
because you can play him at the three if you want to go big. You can play him at the four, and you're not going to get beat up in the post. He lets you be switchable. He lets you space the floor. And the thing that's different about this Virginia team is like, so what they've done for the last like however many years that Tony Bennett has been there is they'll get two big, slow, uh, like stiffs on the floor, and they'll run what's called the block remover offense, which is essentially just you have two big guys out there to set screens. And you let the guards kind of run around off of them. And you're looking to get pin downs. You're looking to get curls. You're looking to let guys like Malcolm Brogdon and Joe Harris and Kyle Guy just run off of screens because that's what they're good at doing. Uh, Reading how the defense is going to play, getting open and making the shot. Now, this year, what they're doing more is everything is like ball screens. They're doing a lot of ball screen continuity stuff. And what you need for that are people that can space the floor. So they'll have... DeAndre Hunter at the four and Braxton Key, who's like another combo forward at the three with Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome out there and a big guy. And all of a sudden, that's the kind of lineup that can guard anybody that wants to play small ball. And the issue with that, like, I don't want to say everything about that loss to UMBC came down to the fact that DeAndre Hunter wasn't there. But DeAndre Hunter was the guy that let them match up with UMBC's four guards. And once UMBC had the four guards and they were going up against two big men, all of a sudden Jairus Lyles gets going a little bit. And, you know, Virginia sees them go on a run. The lemon booty starts creeping up. And, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, we're about to choke. And they had no response to that. And, and, and so they choked. Don't get me wrong. But part of what facilitated the choking was DeAndre Hunter not being there. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does. And, and that, that kind of versatility is, is coveted. I'll tell you when I a name I've brought up when I talk to somebody that seems to just polarize people now, and he's fallen down draft boards. It's Nasir Little, who was much higher earlier in the season, but and there still seem to be some fans of his. But boy, it's it's kind of love him or hate him type of guy right now. Yeah, um, I, I honestly don't know quite how to feel about Nasir Little. Like, I get it in terms of the fact that he is six foot seven. He's got this wingspan. He's so athletic. He plays so hard. I wonder how much he like just kind of understands how to play at this point, right? Like, I, I remember, um, I think it was Sam Vicini, the athletic, that that made this point that. Uh, when he was playing, like part of the reason that he kind of vaulted up all of these draft boards and everybody started talking about him as like a potential top five pick was how good he was in the McDonald's game and how good he was in the Jordan brand game. And part of the reason he was so good in those games is that uh, he just plays harder than anybody. And when you're in an all-star game setting and you are big and physical and as athletic as he is and you play harder than everybody, you are going to look like a superstar. And the issue is that he just does not – He hasn't quite grasped what North Carolina wants to do offensively, and he hasn't quite grasped what he's going to be asked to do defensively for him. And it's not just that. The other part of the issue is uh, the way that North Carolina wants to play is – so with basketball these days, we talk about versatility and we talk about being positionless and we talk about how important it is to be able to slide from being a two to a three or a three to a four or a four to a five or whatever it is, right? That's not what North Carolina wants, and that's not what Roy Williams wants. Roy Williams wants two big guys on the floor. He wants two wings on the floor, and he wants a point guard on the floor. He wants guys that are in specific, defined roles to be able to play the way that he wants to play. He wants to attack the glass. He wants to to get to the offensive boards. He wants to be able to throw the ball into the post. He wants a dynamic point guard, and he wants shooters on the wings to be able to hit ahead and transition and get quick threes. That's what he wants. Nazir Little doesn't fit any of that. You know, like he's this 
he's not really a wing because he can't shoot it well enough, but he's not really a big because he's not going to bury anybody in the post. Um, and he's not going to be able to play with his back to the basket. You know, he's clearly not a point guard. So he's kind of, not only is he had a little bit of some issues picking up what they want to do offensively. And not only is he having some trouble um, like that, that all freshmen do having some trouble picking up defensive concepts. Like that's not, that shouldn't be controversial that freshmen are not great defensively. They, they just aren't. That's what freshmen do. But, you put all of that together with the fact that he's playing in an offense that doesn't necessarily fit the skill set that he has. And, you know, this is what happens and this is what we're looking at. So I'm very torn on Nazir Little. I still get the upside. Um, I would probably there's there's I would take him behind are the guys that are kind of in a similar position. I would probably take him behind DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish and R.J. Barrett and maybe even a Jarrett Culver at this point as well. Um, a lot of people who have gone to, you know, watch North Carolina come on are coming away now talking about Kobe White. Um, he seems to be. I mean, does he need another year of college? Is he just kind of young or inexperienced, or is it, or is it his time already? I think it's probably his time to go. I, I would be very surprised if he ended up at North Carolina for another season. Um, and he just like he's just a bucket getter, man. And and there's a certain point where you just kind of like watch a guy play and you realize like, okay, like he's got all of this in his bag, you know, like he's got all the step backs. He's got all the, the, the crossovers. He knows how to score. Um, he has the size. Like he's, I, I didn't realize it because I thought so much of it was hair, but like, he's legitimately like six, four, six, five. He's a big, big dude. And um, he's so fast in transition. I don't, I think if you draft him, you have to understand that you're not drafting a guy that's going to be a starter. You're drafting a guy that's going to like play a role for you. You're gonna, you're drafting someone that's going to be a microwave scorer off the bench. You know, I don't think that saying he could end up being kind of like a um, a Jamal Crawford kind of role, if that makes sense. Like I, I think that's kind of what you were you have to be expecting when you take him. Like he'll probably be a sixth or a seventh man, but I do think that there is a role for him in the NBA, and he's going to be somebody that is a danger scorer moving forward. Just because, like I said, he's got it all, man. He can make all the shots. Who do you like better out of Kentucky, Keldon Johnson or PJ Washington? PJ Washington. Um, I just I think there's a little bit more upside with him, um, and I, I like Keldon Johnson too. But it, I just I don't necessarily know like what Keldon Johnson does great at an NBA level. Like you you can see it a little bit more with PJ Washington in terms of what his length is and how 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 he can impact the game defensively and what the role that he plays at the next level is. Like, Keldon Johnson, to me, just kind of – he seems a little bit more like someone that's going to be stuck as a role player and, and kind of stuck without a position because I don't – like, I don't know if he's a great shooter. I don't know if he really has the wiggle to be more than just a straight-line driver. I don't know if he's quite athletic enough to um, – to kind of, like, the way that I kind of view him, I think is best, the best way to put it is I think that he is kind of in the mold of like a Miles Bridges – but he's not quite as talented as Miles Bridges, and he's certainly not as athletic as Miles Bridges. And if you take away kind of some of that talent and some of that athleticism from Miles Bridges, what exactly is he in the NBA? Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Uh, who are some of the guys? I mean, I'll, I'll throw one out there, but I, I'm curious about guys you think need to, for their draft stock, really kind of have good conference tournaments, good NCAA tournaments. I mean, scouts at this point have a sense of who guys are, but they here's a chance on a big stage to kind of make a last big impression. The guy that comes to mind for me just because I'm out here in SoCal is Kevin Porter, who 
I, I, you hear rumblings about just his passion and how hard he goes and the motor questions. Uh, to me, he strikes me as a guy who could really help his cause with a big Pac-12 tourney and, and, and beyond. Yeah, like it, he's he's such a weird prospect. Um, you know, we all saw what he did in like the first seven games of the season when he put together some like this this highlight package, and you could put together like a two minute YouTube video clip, and just all the things that he was doing were just absolutely ridiculous. And he shot up everybody's draft boards, and all of a sudden he got top five hype. Then this mysterious like thigh bruise popped up, and we didn't see him for six weeks, and then he comes back and immediately gets suspended and all of a sudden like then he's coming off the bench and you know he's not really shooting the ball all that well um i do think that he is a guy that if it all comes together could end up being a like 20 point per game score in the nba i legitimately believe that much in kind of what his like physical tools are but he is to me in that same conversation as like a ball ball where if you are drafting him, you have to realize that there are going to be some risks and some red flags and some question marks. And there's a very real chance that he could end up being a total bust. Um, I think, and this from a conversation I had with someone in the NBA, like I think if you draft Kevin Porter, like he's a Seattle kid. Um, he like there, there are some, I don't know how much I want to like say, but like, I think the best way to phrase it is like, maybe there are, uh, some character issues, and yeah. I don't like. I don't think that I don't think that he's a bad kid. I just think that he needs to be in a structured environment. It's probably the best way that I could phrase it. Um, and one guy I mentioned, like if you're going to draft Kevin Porter, a Seattle kid, what you need to do is you need to go out and you just sign Jamal Crawford because Jamal Crawford has the respect of everybody, like all yeah. those young kids coming up in Seattle. So you get Jamal Crawford, you try to get him to kind of mentor Kevin Porter, keep him on the straight and narrow, get him to buy into the idea of what it means to be a professional basketball player and what what like the work that that requires and the training and the dedication and and the discipline and and all like not showing up late over and over and over again, not talking back to coaches, all that kind of stuff. I think if you get Jamal Crawford and help him kind of grow into what uh, Kevin Porter's ceiling is, I think that you could there's there's a very real chance that he could end up being the guy that averages the most points in the season out of this draft. I don't think that that's a hot take at all, but I also think that there's a chance that he could be out of the league in two years. So you, you got to take him knowing that's the risk that uh, that that you're making when you make that pick. And I think it's the same thing with Bull Bull. You know, I, I I've never been on the Bull Bull bandwagon. He's a shot blocker that is an absolutely horrid defender. He is a guy that um, wants to make threes, but I'm not sure what else he does for you offensively. I have no idea like who he guards in the modern NBA. He can't guard anybody in the post because you just bury him. He can't guard anybody in the perimeter because he can't really move his feet. Um, you know, he could block shots, but it, you know, you, you give him a little shot. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm like 90% certain Kurt, that if you posted him up, you would be able to move him out of position. So I just I don't I don't I would not take it. Well, I have to, so, I have and, been working and, on my and all that. Yeah, you have. Been. So, um, <laughs> uh, so and, and forget all that other stuff. There's also questions about whether or not he actually loves the game of basketball, and he has I think it's a, a, a navicular bone fracture, right? Which you know a seven foot three dude with foot problems, that, uh, pass, yeah, pa- hard pass. I'll let somebody else deal with that. And, and have that kind of stress in their life. Uh, if I'm an NBA G- GM pass and I sit and, and, and after saying all of that, I would not be surprised to see Bobo go 
in like the top 10 or 12 picks just because someone's going to fall in love with the potential and, and decide to roll the dice on it. Yeah. Uh, we are not going to be seeing Darius Garland in the play, uh, in the tournament from uh, Vanderbilt, but who, again, who should we be watching uh, the next couple of weeks? Who are some of the guys that you think if you're an NBA fan, like, Hey, you might want to watch this guy. Cause he could, you know, your team could end up with him at some point and he's a guy who's just going to fit in and his game's going to fit in. Well, I mean, you absolutely have to watch John Morant's first game. There's no question about that. He's going to try to put up 60 on whoever they end up drawing in the first round. And there's a chance that he could end up doing that. Like, I don't think that that is um, at all out of the question. He's just such a talented guy that that gets such a heavy workload. Um, I think that I'm, I'm really curious. Like, honestly, we talked about it already. I'm curious to see what Cam Reddish can do in the NCAA tournament. I think that if – Texas gets into the dance. You have to really pay attention to Jackson Hayes because he is the kind of uh, like just the center, uh, a center prospect that, you know, you look at him and it just screams like um, Clint Capella kind of a thing, right? He's 6'11". He's got such length. He's so athletic. He's so young and so raw that, you know, at some point when you got a big guy like that, it's almost better to get a blank canvas because you can kind of mold them the way that you want them to, to kind of turn into at the NBA level, as opposed to getting a guy that already has kind of some bad habits and grain. So uh, I think Jackson Hayes has an outside chance of ending up being like a top eight pick. Um, if you haven't seen Jarrett Culver play, I'm absolute. I, I love Jarrett Culver. I think the two guys I love in this draft more than anybody else that does this are uh, DeAndre Hunter and Jarrett Culver. Culver's like six foot six. He is um, kind of a combo guard. Like it, it's weird the way that Texas Tech plays offense. He is they, – they play a lot of four-guard looks, but Jarrett Culver, like, is their point guard and their distributor and their creator and their initiator. Um, and and so he is a guy that I think really fits in well uh, with where the NBA is going in terms of being kind of like a, a perimeter-oriented player. Um, and then, you know, if you haven't watched Brandon Clark play – I think that he's probably like a top five player. I don't, I don't think he's a top five prospect, but I do think he's a top five player in the the sport of college basketball. So um, this is – and this is the stat you need to know with Brandon Clark. Uh, the record heading into this season for the highest PA, PER that anybody posted in, in, in college basketball, dating back – I think the database I looked at dated back to 2009 was 36.9, and that was a kid named John Brown from High Point. Zion Williamson right now is like a 42.3 and Brandon Clark. The last time I checked was 37.4. And I know those numbers are all kind of out of context, but the thing you got to think about is that Brandon Clark, if if there was no Zion Williamson, if he did not exist, Brandon Clark would have the best PER in the history of college basketball, at least dating back to 2009. It's funny. He he was next on my list of our, my literal notes on him are, are we sleeping on Brandon Clark? So I'm, I'm glad you got to him as a, as a, you know, I, and here's the thing. I don't think that we're sleeping on him. I think everybody knows at this point that he's like pretty much a lottery pick. I just think that the fact that he is not – he doesn't appear like he's ever really going to be a good jump shooter. And I think the fact that he's he's a guy that doesn't really space the floor kind of caps what his upside is going to be. He's also – I want to say he's 22 years old. He is a junior by class and a senior because he sat out a year. Um, so he's he's definitely – not somebody where you're drafting him and saying, okay, he's got all like he, he's got all this room for growth and all this 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 potential to end up being um, a, a, a get that much better. 
you know, you're, you're basically drafting him because you know what he's going to end up being. Yep. Um, what I really wanted to do was spend the last 15 minutes of this podcast breaking down the uh, Long Beach State Hawaii first round game of the Big West tournament, but uh, um, I'm not sure that that would. Our boss would prefer you talk about Kansas for 20 minutes. Um, I don't think we're going to do either of those things. Uh, well, do you want to talk about Kansas because I, I do think oh, that they're I, also sure. interesting as uh, well. Yeah. Look, so here's the, make make our boss happy. Well, so so here's the thing about Kansas is. Um, it's it's so it's the fact that this is the year that the streak finally ended. You know, for people, uh, this is an NBA podcast. For people that don't know, Kansas won the Big Twelve for fourteen straight years before this season, and I just it's baffling to me. Like with all the stuff that they've had go on over like the last five, six, seven years, whatever it is, that it, it took this much for them to finally have that streak end. And, and when I say this much, they lost their starting center, Yudoka Azubuki, who is the guy they built their entire offense around, throwing the ball to him in the post with DJ Diedrich Lawson and Yudoka running high-low offense all day long. They lost him in uh, in early January to, I think it was like a torn wrist ligament. They had Gerald Vick, who was the guy that kind of buoyed them for the first month of the season, uh, fall off the face of the earth, and he's not going to be back. Uh, they had Marcus Garrett, who was their best perimeter defender, miss, I want to say, three weeks with a sprained ankle. You know, they had their best incoming freshman, a kid named Quentin Grimes, uh, go from being like a projected top 10 pick to being someone that doesn't look like they're going to end up going in the first round because he totally lost his confidence. They are currently starting four freshmen on a team that was coming into the season was supposed to be built on the fact that they had so much depth and they had so much experience on the roster. They're starting four freshmen. How about this? One of those freshmen was supposed to be their third string center coming into the season. The other freshman who has has kind of been like their second best player, maybe third best player over the course of the last month, was a guy that was supposed to redshirt this season. He didn't play the first 15 games of the season because they didn't want him to play because he was going to be a redshirt because they didn't know if he was ready or not. So that kind of tells you what this Kansas team had to deal with all year long. And despite it all, you know, until the last week of the season, they were right there in the mix with a Texas Tech team that, for my money, is a top six team in college basketball at this moment. That tells you all you need to know about how good Bill Self is at making things work and, you know, probably how good that uh, that Fog Allen Fieldhouse is as a home court environment. Any uh, idea on who might be a good sleeper in the tournament? I, Wofford or somebody sneaking in? Wofford. Um, I, can we still call him a sleeper? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not still, anymore. Is that, yeah. is that still allowed? Uh, a good sleeper. So define a sleeper for me. Are you talking about like a, a mid-major kind of team that can yeah. pull an upset or maybe like a six, seven, eight seed that can make a run um, to the final four? I was thinking more like uh, the upset, you know, the the, the team, not teens, but double digit seed who, who can shock the world a little bit. So the double digit seed that will shock the world, Wofford doesn't count because they're going to end up being a seven seed. And I'm not going to say Murray State because we already – yeah, uh, discuss them. The team that I actually think is kind of dangerous um, and it's kind of sneaky is going to end up being Northeastern. They just won the CAA tournament. Uh, I believe it was last night. They are, they can really guard. They can really, really shoot. They get on the defensive glass. They don't go after the offensive glass. So they're not going to give up transition points. They don't turn the ball over. And those are the things that you look for when you're talking about an upset. And um, they're probably going to end up – I think they'll be able to sneak onto the 14C line, which is important because the difference between number two seeds and number three seeds in the bracket this year looks like it's going to be pretty big. So uh, that is the team that I'm kind of looking at as somebody that uh, might be able to pick somebody off that that may not be expecting it. 
Perfect. All right, man. Well, thanks again for doing this. We will have you back on. We will do our annual uh, uh, mock draft once we get to past the NCAA tournament and and past the lottery and into the, in, into that mode. So in a couple of months. But thanks a lot for doing this. And by the way, congratulations for people who don't know uh, uh, your wife and you just had your your second child. So congratulations. Getting any sleep? <laughs> not much, man. Not much at all. You, you realize you're not supposed to time this like this, right? Yeah, at, at the risk of uh, having too many graphic details, let's just say that um, it happened immediately when we weren't expecting things to happen immediately. Ah, uh, I've been there, and um, without getting into again, not going way back, but to, for people who don't know, uh, before I was working for NBC, I was running a a, a Laker blog, and uh, I had two of my three children while they were in the finals and they lost both finals, which had Laker fans like stop having kids. Uh, <laughs> but you know, there's nothing my wife liked more than me putting the game on in the hotel, in the uh, hospital room. So um, thanks a lot again for doing this, Rob. Congratulations. And uh, we will talk soon. I was actually, so I, I don't know if I've told the story on your podcast yet, but I was actually born during the, uh, the Villanova Georgetown 1985 national title. No game. way. Really? That is crazy. During the game. Oh man, see, see it's it's all it's all kismet, man. It all works out. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks again and thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next week with more Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.